Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Borag Thung. My name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. This is the second part of the episode 18, which is all about Just Dread RPG from Games Workshop and our memories of 2000 AD. This is an extra bit with all the stuff that didn't fit in the first part. It's not a follow-up, it's a companion. We love hearing from listeners, and the first part has encouraged discussion on the grognardfiles.com site. Thanks to Rex for this review on iTunes. Life-changing. Well, not really. A great trip down Senility Street, yet with its jaundiced eye firmly fixed on the horizon. All of the games are reviewed with humour and warmth whilst playing the podcast where my wife could hear. She burst out, I can't believe they spent so much time thinking so deeply about this. She's got a point. In this podcast, we go deep diving into the rules for Just Dread RPG with our resident rules lawyer, Judge Blythe. Mark Gascoigne returns to face the Games Master screen and talk about his career beyond Judge Dread RPG. But first, it's Daily Dwarf. He talks about his history with 2000 AD, the galaxy's greatest comic. Let's be careful out there. Ramblers, let's get rambling. White Dwarf! 2000 AD and me. Britain in early... 1977, a country languishing in the doldrums, moribund, with discontent stalking the land. In this gloomy atmosphere, what could the kids turn to for entertainment? We only had three TV channels to choose from. Or, if we were desperate, we could always listen to our older brother's prog rock albums. Lord help us. Hard times indeed. But luckily, rebellion was staring a movement intent on kicking out the old guard, of overthrowing the establishment. What's that you say? Punk rock? Oh no, this was something much more subversive. The Galaxy's Greatest Comic, 2000 AD. I missed Prog 1, but I became aware of the space spinners flying across the playground, so I sent my mother out on a doomed journey around the newsagents of Cardiff to see if they had any copies left. Too late, I'm afraid. So Prog 2 was my first issue, and what a free gift it had on the cover. Biotronic stickers. These led to a whole nation of mini Steve Austins running rampage across the concrete schoolyards of Britain, making the slow-motion sound effect from the $6 million man as they went. <laughs> Great stuff. Even if peeling them off your arm was a minor exercise in torture. Prog 2 was, of course, famously the first issue to feature the lawman of the future, Judge Dredd. So, what were my first impressions of old Stonyface all those years ago? Well, um, I don't remember Dredd from those early issues at all. Complete blank. Sorry, Joe. Other strips did create a lasting impression. I remember enjoying the fast-paced, jet-packing, kung-fu-kicking action of Harlem Heroes and cheered on the plucky British underground resistance in Invasion. 
Sadly, not having Prog won, I did miss the sight of Prime Minister Margaret Thatt, I mean Shirley Brown, being gunned down on the steps of St Paul's by those nasty Vogues. But more than any other, the strip that burned itself into my young brain was flesh. How could this strip not appeal to the seven-year-old boy? The setup was so high concept. It was positively stratospheric. What happened to the dinosaurs? Well, cowboys from the future were harvesting them for meat, that's what. Genius. The machinations of the grizzled Earl Regan and Claw Carver and their conflict with the formidable tyrannosaur Old One-Eye were compelling. The hag monster wants blood. Not only that, 2000 AD also gave us Flesh, the card game. I don't remember the details of the game anymore, but I do have a distinct memory of my excited anticipation dutifully gluing the pages to some old cereal boxes and cutting out the cards. Flesh and Invasion were my first exposure to the work of Pat Mills, the original Tharg the Mighty. I instantly became a fan of his work and have remained so over the years. His combination of wildly inventive imagination, an acerbic sense of humour and an anti-authoritarian streak has made for many memorable stories. If Peter Cook and Bob Black had decided to collaborate on a Michael Moore cocktail, you get Pat Mills. Now, he might not thank me for comparing him with Moorcock, given his annoyance with Michael Moorcock's critical comments around the time of 2000 AD's launch. But nevertheless, I think the comparison is apposite. Both writers enjoy playing with the conventions and subversing genre tropes, and they both have a history of linking their disparate stories into a wider arcing narratives. Pat Mill's writing combines some savage satire with an authentic British eccentricity, and I think he's enjoyed his role corrupting the minds of Britain's youth, in the best possible way, you understand, for over 40 years. He's always held true to his principles, continually challenging the elites and those in power, always standing up for the outsider, the little guy, even if that little guy happens to be a gargantian T-Rex. For my seven-year-old self, though, a problem was looming. As well as 2000 AD, back in 1977, I was also a keen reader of Crazy Comic, which had been launched in the previous year. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, my mother issued an ultimatum. I could only have one comic each week. What an impossible choice. As much as I was enjoying 2000 AD at the time, I also loved the exploits of the characters in Crazy. Birdman and Chicken, Scurdy Cat, Hit Kid and all. And so, Tharg forgive me, the decision was made. I opted for Crazy. Who knows how a short history might have ended at this point if it wasn't for another publication several years later. What else but White Dwarf? Everything comes back to White Dwarf. After a sequence of striking fantasy science fiction artwork, sometimes wonderful, sometimes weird, the cover for White Dwarf 36 was a bit different. A comic book art featuring some kind of cop 
dressed as a cross between a stormtrooper and a member of the village people, menacing a punk. Inside that glorious Brian Bolland cover, Ian Livingstone explained the background to his Dread board game. The game sounded fun, and it was based on a character from the comic 2000 AD. Eh? 2000 AD? Oh yes, I remember reading that back when I was seven. It might still have ended there, but for two things. One, the issue of White Dwarf also contained a full-page advert for the Titan Books reprint series of the classic Judge Dredd stories, and two, soon after, my friendly local game shop, the much-missed F.C. Parker, started stocking those books on their shelves. With their lovely, glossy, full-colour covers, those Titan reprints were impossible to resist. And Titans certainly knew what they were doing. They hit us punters with the one-two of a Bolland collection, followed by one of the strips from Mike Mahoan. I feel now that I owe all of these creators an apology, as I've read both Pat Mills and Dread writer John Wagner complain that they received a very poor deal from those Titan reprints. But they were a great way to catch up on all those classic Dread stories I missed in the 2008 dealers years. I was hooked. The versatility of Mega City 1 as a backdrop has allowed writers to tackle all kinds of stories. From the horror of the dark judges to the action and adrenaline rush of the apocalypse war. To stories of out and out craziness like The Stupid Gun and Otto Sump's Ugly Clinic. At the centre of it all, of course, is Judge Dredd himself. Sometimes a hero, trekking through the cursed earth to save Mega City 2, but often the villain, his repeated brutal suppression of democracy. I suspect the satire and politics were sometimes lost on my teenage self, but one of the things I find intriguing about reading Dredd now is that you find yourself rooting for the murderous repressive fascist. I could start reminiscing about all the classic Dread stories from the past and the amazing artists who brought them to life, but you'll likely know them all anyway, so I'll stick to a quick mention of one. It's not the greatest Judge Dread story, but it's one of my favourites, and it contains many elements that go to make a quintessential Dread tale. Requiem for a heavyweight ran from Prog's 331 to 334 and is a deft mix of police procedural, authentic megacity madness, in this case illegal eating competitions, and some great comic writing from John Wagner and Alan Grant, and very effective artwork from Carlos Equesra. As is often the case, Dread is fairly implacable at the centre of things, immune to the insanity around him, is focused solely on upholding the law. It also features a tragic hero, a character archetype that often occurs in Judred's stories. Think of Uncle Ump and Otto Sump. In this case, our hero is Abdominable Arnie Stodgman, a man who just loves to eat, trained to take part in the heavyweight eating championship of the world. He seems to knowingly pursue a doomed course, powerless to avoid the tragic end that awaits him. It's as if Arnie knows his path is set to destruction, 
but he can't help it but follow it. I said, give me the pie. I started buying 2000 AD regularly again in the late 1980s, which happened to coincide with several great stories. The Black Hole, Pat Mills and Simon Bisley enlist the ABC Warriors to save the Earth from destruction. Slain, the Horn God, from the same creative team, a landmark storyline that really announced Bisley into the world. Zenith, Grant Morrison and Steve Yowell's innovative and refreshingly cynical take on superheroes. This very British approach to the genre was continued more recently with Rob Williams' The Ten Seconders. Since that time, I've had an on-off relationship with buying 2000 AD. Currently, it's very much on again. I'd say it's currently going through a bit of a golden period, as well as many classic series being revived, and dread on great form as ever, there are many new series well worth your attention. Jaeger, a rogue trooper, retold from the point of view of the bad guys. Aquila, ultra-violence in a supernatural ancient Rome. And Hope, film noir collides with the occult, just to name a few. There have been so many memorable stories over the last 40 years of 2000 AD, but I thought I'd close with my absolute favourite. Nemesis the Warlock. I can't imagine anything as vibrant, as deranged, as out there as this series coming from American comics. The story of the struggles between Nemesis, the demonic alien, and Torquemada, the leader of a future Earth, and the descendant of the head of the Spanish Inquisition, gave Pat Mills an opportunity to once again champion the outsider with the alien nemesis cast as the good guy, as well as to publicly exercise the trauma of his Catholic upbringing. Rereading the tales recently, I was struck by both the wild invention of the storylines and also the level of humour Pat Mills injects. The earlier books in particular featuring the oddball antics of some of Nemesis's extended family. Kevin O'Neill will forever be the artist most associated with Nemesis the Warlock, and that's difficult to argue with. The insane level of detail in the art of these early stories is breathtaking. But the other artists who later took on the strip also brought their own distinctive styles to bear. Brian Talbot had the unenviable task of taking over from Kevin O'Neill partway through the epic The Gothic Empire. O'Neill had already established a very distinctive look for this story, with, according to Pat Mills, without any doubt the greatest comic book steampunk art of all time. I can't disagree with that, but fortunately, an artist of the calibre of Brian Talbot was more than capable of evolving the visuals, adopting a dark, Dickensian sensibility, and giving us an earthier, more organic nemesis, in contrast to Kevin O'Neill's angular, burnished chrome alien. The story itself has it all. War, intrigue, cross and double cross, not to mention the return of the ABC Warriors. Brian Talbot illustrated a number of subsequent nemesis stories before the late, great John Hinkleton took over. His style suited the later nemesis tales perfectly. No more so than in Deathbringer. This story sees both Nemesis and Torquemada 
washed up from the time waste in a bleak, depressing modern-day Britain. Hicklington's art expertly captures the dispiriting, grimy mood with Nemesis and Tokamada now seemingly resigned to the knowledge that they'll remain locked in a perpetual conflict. Even here, though, there's still room for some of Mills's humour, as Hicklington's powerful, sinuous demon, armed with sword sinister, battles with a bulging, eye-popping Tokamada, armed with a, um, a hedge trimmer. It's a memorable story, wonderfully rendered in some outstanding artwork. And that's the point with this, and so many 2080 tales. The fusion of story and artwork makes each element elevate the other. These stories work best as comics. Long may 2080 continue. Gamesmaster Screen! Welcome to the Gamesmaster Screen and the return of Mark Gascoigne the lead writer and line developer for the Just Dread RPG for Games Workshop back in the 1980s. Hello, Mark. Hiya. So, I'll just put this screen in front of us and a table filled with interesting high points of Mark's career in gaming and publishing. This time, because it is Mark, I'm armed with two dice and a pencil so I can pick, apparently at random, a topic for discussion. So, without further ado, it's... Nine. Titan. The fighting fantasy world. Uh, yeah, well, I'd, I'd done uh, the fighting uh, fantasy monster book out of the pit first while I was still at workshop in London just before we moved up. And that was another one of those gigs that Stephen Ian were approached to do. And they very kindly came in and said, hey, do you fancy you know, doing a monster book? Which I did. And uh, that sold very well. And then I got charged with doing Titan, the fighting fantasy world book, which is among the best things I've ever worked on in a fairly lengthy career because I just put heart and soul into it much the same as happened with the dread game. Uh, but in this case, I was making up nine tenths of it. It wasn't you know, finding an obscure reference to a particular type of you know, new cult or, or whatever, or a, a faded TV star for the dread game. So we could write him into the glossary. It was coming up with plans for an elf treetop village or a, a whole religious system or a map of the, uh, the demon Kings of hell and their various halls in the pit and so on and so forth. And that came out and, again, did very well. Both of those books were, were top ten children's bestsellers. Well, it's, it's, really, and, well, it's uh, really well written. And uh, I've, I've got a copy here, actually. You know, it still, uh -huh. still stands up uh, today. And uh, one of the things that it stands out for is the fabulous cover, of course, with the... Uh, uh, Chris, Christos Achilleos, wonderful, wonderful cover designer. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, I, he was one of those guys. It was actually a dream to work with. I'd offer, I, as a teenager, I'd bought SF and fantasy novels with his cover art on a whole bunch of Paul Anderson, uh, Nicholas Van Rin novels that I didn't particularly care for. But because they had Chris Achilleos covers, they, they're all right by me. And uh, to be able to uh, brief him on that cover and give him the details of what we wanted on it to then have him deliver such a magnificent piece of art that's been reused here, there and everywhere, um, including in Warhammer Roleplay stuff in the end. Uh, but what a wonderful, a wonderful artist. And uh, ultimately, when I moved on from workshop, uh, as the roleplay stuff was starting to fade, but also because, frankly, I was a mouthy git who still thought he was a fanzine editor and uh, I wasn't playing very well with others. And as I say, I was one of the team who were doing things other than well, I'm a fantasy role play. So there were all sorts of things going in. So I got given the push. And uh, as luck would have it, the fighting fantasy consultant editor was moving on. 
so they asked me because I knew a lot about the world whether I knew anything about taking apart the actual game books and making them work and of course I said I did and that was it and off I went so although I ran that line for Puffin as a consultant editor for close on a decade and we ended up however many tens of millions of, of books sold 59 titles in the whole range plus a bunch of spin-offs co-wrote some of the novels and uh, um, background books but also uh, the advanced fighting fantasy roleplay system which uh, along with Woofrup and Dread, I still think might be the, the top three best-selling British RPG systems because that one went out through bookstores and sold in its tens, twenties, thirty thousand copies uh, over and over again and then was licensed into all these languages on the back of Fighting Fantasy being abs- absolutely in its prime and pomp. And that one was the exact opposite to Dread in that it was purely beginner-aimed. It, the first adventure you play in the first book, Dungeoneer, uh, you don't actually even use any rules for. We just take you through a role-play call and response, and it's only in the second adventure we start adding rules to it and die roll. And it's all D6-based, but it uses a fairly complicated skill modifier system derived from adding a bit of bells and whistles to uh, to Fighting Fantasy. But uh, Fighting Fantasy is just a D6 system. And that was that was tremendous fun. But yet again, a bit like uh, the Dread role playing game, I'm the background and world and imaginative arty guy. And I ended up doing the rule system while my co-writer, Pete Tamlin, did the uh, did the who's very much a rules developer, did the uh, did all the writing and uh, and the fluffy stuff and the adventures. I have no idea what was going on with that. But uh, it was damn good fun. And we did three of those with a couple more planned that didn't happen. But uh, absolutely tremendous stuff. Next up, oh, it's almost a fumble. A story I'm fascinated by, and that's the fate of Dark Future. A cyberpunk game, and it was a cyberpunk RPG, and it was not the uh, the car racing game as it ended up initially. It was from a couple of people who'd read Neuromancer and Count Zero, but nothing else because nothing else was on the market at that point. And we were pulling our plans together as the first wave of cyberpunk novels. Uh, uh, Bruce Sterling and uh, um, Bruce Beckke and Walter John Williams Hardwired particularly had a big influence because that's very much adventure based was starting to get published and it was uh, another Tamlin Gascoigne uh, proposed production with a very sleek game system got to be the background editor on that was one of my freelance jobs after I moved on from workshop because I I kept working for them for a couple of years finishing off the Dread Companion and that and a bunch of Blood Bowl stuff and uh, the stuff what we were weaving back in was all the the meaty stuff that had to make the background work. But then good old Kim Newman particularly, but the various novel writers from the first wave of Games Workshop Fiction took all that and went bananas with it in a, in a terms of alternate history. But Kim particularly in things like Demon Download, where Elvis Presley is a sanctioned operative out chasing down perps uh, across the Badlands. And... Uh, all that sort of stuff was really interesting. We did look at licensing off a more recent version back into an RPG, but this time playing full feasance to the Warhammer background that was hidden beneath the fiction uh, because it was always planned uh, the moment we were bolting on the background that there would also be hints of chaos mutation. And then I worked out this very arcane system where the four chaos gods entered Earth at different times. And one of them, uh, Slanesh, entered in the body of Elvis's stillborn dead twin, Jesse Aaron Presley. Uh, sorry, Jesse Garen Presley, and entered the world at that point. But the others entered at different points that were key branch points in the alternate history. And the, the forces were now gathering to turn 
yeah, the, uh, post-apocalypse Mad Maxi type Earth into a chaos wasteland. Thankfully, uh, probably for everyone's sanity, that never happened. But uh, the so, so, uh, the so how so how phone development did it get, Mark? The uh... the, the role play game we never played, right. but there was a basic rule system. There were adventures written, and we got very close. And then, to the extent that because we were kind of mavens of the old fanzine system and what they used to call the hobby Illuminati uh, back in the day. There were several issues of fanzines devoted to speculating what Dark Future might be if only the guys would ever write it. <laughs> and at that point, we started to get Pete and I somewhat disenchanted with that. It's like, well, you know, perhaps this is a hoax game and we don't need to make it. But then, as I say, at that point, uh, uh, the uh, the Battle Cars game turned into Dark Future and off it went into its own glorious thing. And why not? Okay, I roll again and it's a 10. Your only fighting fantasy book, Battle Blade Warrior. Indeed, yes. Unbelievably, although I say I worked on the line for, for a decade, I only wrote one game book. Though one of the reasons for that was I had a whole bunch of ideas, but I didn't want to be the editor who also commissions himself to do work. I don't think that's particularly ethical. So I had another one, The Night of the Creature, that was going to be about number 40, and then hopped on and hopped on and hopped on, and eventually it was going to be number 61, and we shot at 59. Uh, so uh, that didn't happen, and it was only ever in note form. But I did, you know, I did do the, the, the worked with uh, Stephen Ian on novels and uh, and background books and things. So. What's the, what's the process then for uh, creating a solo game? Is it, is it just lots of post-it notes and uh, well, lines the, drawn? My, my, my day job uh, for them, or at least the consultant editor, part of my, my freelance uh, life with them, was actually getting enormous sheets of paper all over the floor of my flat where you would start drawing up an entire flowchart, much like a chemical reaction uh, or chemical process, and numbering them to make sure that all the numbers match up and go to the right place. Um, but actually writing it is not dissimilar. For me, and, and Battleblade Warrior is explicitly this, Battleblade Warrior picks up from a paragraph I explicitly wrote in Titan about a besieged city. And I knew a year and a half before I even proposed the game book that that would make a great adventure seed. There were a whole bunch of those in Titan quite deliberately. Um, but uh, that one I did uh, in, in the end hive off for myself. So it had a plot, which is break out, find the ultimate terror weapon if you can, and then come back with it to uh, to release the siege with all sorts of stuff going on in the middle that I wanted to, to feed in. Um, but more than anything, you kind of have an end point, a few middle points, and then you have to set off and you have to juggle between taking a particular path, which may be the path you want them to tell, but then remembering, oh, actually, just like a GM, you have to give people options. So at the end of every corridor, you turn left or right or at a crossroads, you can go to the mountains or the hills or at a particular point, you decide to keep going this way or that way. For me, there's then the extra level of very clever gameplay, which is often hidden until you realize what people are doing. But as people wrote their third and their fifth game book in the range, they started to, to realize that there were other things they could do. So, for example, you get a thing like um, you have found the golden key. If someone says, have you got a golden key? Follow that option. Well, that's all very well. But that that tells people you should have the golden key. But if it says if you have the golden key, anytime someone scratches their, their nose, add 20 to the paragraph you're on and go there instead then you've got hidden mechanics. 
and you may have a bit almost a bit like secret levels in doom or whatever you've got things that you'll only know if you really have been that way and suddenly that got really interesting because you could build all sorts of levels of things into it taking things uh, into a whole secret hidden level that you'd only know if you got that though to be honest nothing would ever match up to creature of havoc i don't know if you know that one yeah, yeah. but where you start you wake up and you're in the body of a monster and it's written in a garbled coded language so every time someone speaks to you it's in you know bcfgqrp rather than hello monster what are you doing and you can try and crack the code, but more likely you play halfway and then learn some of the keys to to co- to in, uh, to decode some of the things being said to you. But it was I, that playfulness has always attracted me, the ability to take something and try and break it, even within the constraints of it. There are things you can do in game books like that that just make me so happy. And uh, it was wonderful working with very talented people who were doing these sort of things and you know, developing them, encouraging them, picking different, of the wor- different parts of the world because after Titan, there were areas set aside for adventures to be set in. And then trying to, to do different things, doing the two-player ones where you each had a game book and you would meet somewhere in the middle and fight with each other and then head off and kind of stalk each other and all sorts of different ideas with it. Ultimately, of course, computers were had already superseded us pretty much by the time the first game books came out. But for a glorious 10, 12 years in the sun, it was tremendous and uh, and was the next stage in the evolution of, of those sort of adventures. But the moment you could put on fast-moving graphics and things that would take you here, there, and everywhere, even in the early days of Spectrum games, your Manic Miners or whatever, then um, it's it's it became a, uh, a blind alley, perhaps. Okay. And that's a seven. So further adventures in publishing, and that's developing the Warhammer fiction line. Yeah, I had been doing Finding Fantasy for about ten, eleven years, and that was coming to an end. And I actually got, uh, I got uh, asked if I'd give uh, a guy called Andy Jones, uh, the Games Workshop studio, a bit of freelance help, a bit of editing, a bit of design work, on some Warhammer Quest material. Now, Warhammer Quest was kind of like the board game equivalent of Warhammer Roleplay where you would go down adventure, uh, down dungeons, you'd have various geomorphs and various characters. And it was all a very jolly beer and pretzels approach to it. And every so often they do another character or another adventure pack. And I started doing those because simply because the studio was at capacity making a lot of Warhammer stuff. And I got talking to him and Rick Priestley had had an idea to do a Warhammer equivalent to the old Blue Peter annuals based obviously on the, the classic BBC uh, show. But more importantly, it's spin-off Christmas books, which were a mix of makes john noakes shows you how to make the uh, the christmas crown out of uh, four coat hangers and a bit of non-flammable tinsel to here's you know pete and val going up the orinoco on a on a on a, on a raft and here's a, a cartoon strip bleep and booster it used to be amazing <laughs> kid sci-fi strip and here's some stories and here's so doing that for warhammer would make something very special that was a conglomerate of the best of white dwarf plus a whole bunch of special features but including stories and comic strips which there really wasn't room in the pages of white dwarf very much devoted obviously to modeling painting and gaming with with all the new releases so we we potted away on that as an idea and they offered me a job to come in and help make it work and that became inferno magazine which was quite compromised into being a magazine rather than a book but out of that we commissioned our first fiction in the first or second issue, there was a story about uh, Gaunt's Ghosts by a guy called Dan Abnett, who'd come in to do comic strips because he was a 2008 guy who we'd got talking to. He was an old RPG gamer and uh, incredibly talented fellow, realized uh, that he uh, was uh, was very good at capturing the Warhammer spirit in comic strip scripts and in fiction. 
And very soon that turned into Warmer Monthly Comic, first big you know, teenage comic launch in Britain since 2000 AD. It was ridiculous. We went off and won all the awards that 2000 AD wasn't eligible for just on this funny little black and white comic. But that then led to graphic novels and more importantly to the novels. And uh, the Black Library, run by Andy, uh, myself as the assistant editor, grew into a team of five and then 12. And then uh, we were doing novels monthly and then novels two a month and then we were selling them and selling some more and selling some more and uh people started to feed back into the games and it just grew and grew and grew and it was an obvious thing but there were some very key strategies behind it but more than anything it was treating the ip with respect there's a lot of tie-in fiction out there and some of it is great what they're doing with star wars at the moment getting in amazing writers um like uh, I know all sorts of delighted dawson's book is out uh, on uh, ray this month and just a splendid piece of work but a whole bunch of people whether it's ken Liu or chuck wendig or various other people writing uh, the best best new sci-fi writers writing star wars but there's also a tradition of absolute shonky old crap particularly on the gaming tie-in side and some of it's perfectly good color text that will give you an example of, of how the game is. Some of it will really take on a life of its own, like Ed Greenwood's and uh, Paul Kemp's work in Forgotten Realms and similar writers, uh, Raymond Feist and various other folks. But uh, more than anything, the key with the Warhammer stuff was to make it as absolutely as good as we possibly could and make sense of the world, a lot of which had been created only for games on the tabletop and there were a lot of gaps in it yeah you know, there's no currency in the warmer world until you get into the role play there's no measurement of time and distances and years until you get to the role play side in 40k world none of that is talked about what's the currency in warmer 40,000 universe mm. sooner or later these questions had to be answered but we had to work within those constraints the other thing we had to do was certainly in the early days was create worlds that didn't impinge on the soldiers game because you buy your armies you want to play with them what you don't want is to invest in a particular Imperial Guard regiment and then learn that Dad, Dad, Dan Abnett or whoever has killed them off in the latest novel. You don't want to have your army wiped out. That's often that overall ethos is why sometimes the Wormer worlds feel like they're in a bit of a stasis because you can't say to someone who spent hundreds of quid and as importantly hundreds of hours painting up this glorious looking uh, uh, regiment to go field on the field of battle. You can't suddenly take their, their, their soldiers out of the game background. So we had to put everything back in the box. But on that first week, we talked about Horus Heresy, which was the uh, 10,000 years earlier origin myth of a lot of the Chaos Warriors and Space Marines and the Immortal Emperor and so on as a potential for Lion. And it only took me nine years to get to the point where we were trusted enough to not break any of the background worlds, not to play merry hell with the existing IP, but also to create amazing fiction with very talented writers. They finally let us work off those first three uh, Dan Abnett, Graham McNeil I think Ben Counter the third one and uh, look where they are now every one of those hits the bestseller list tens of thousands of, uh, of copies sold month in month out and uh, absolutely world beating approach to high quality fiction that's taken on a life of its own and has led finally to Horus Heresy going back into the games which uh, since they always told me they never would do that I, I, uh, I'm very pleased to see Excellent. Now, this this uh, next question, uh, Mark, is uh, is a sponsored question because I wasn't playing games. I wasn't get playing games in uh, in, in the nineties, and I missed a game called Earth Dawn. 
uh, and my <laughs> my friends uh, at the Smart Party podcast, they keep telling me that I've missed a, a real treat. And I know that you worked on a box set, didn't you, with Carl Sargent? Yeah, so how did that come about? Oh, Carl had been doing game books. Carl had also uh, been doing various Warhammer Fantasy roleplay stuff and was a Nottingham-based writer at the time, and we got talking about all sorts of things. Because he was freelance, he was looking for other projects, and we actually started writing Shadowrun, which was the cyberpunk but with reborn elves and magic powers game that Fazza were, uh, were just carving their own clever little niche with. And this is cyberpunk very much as it is late 80s, early 90s with the American style. Everyone looks like Billy Idol, even the women. <laughs> and uh, It's cool, but it's, you know, it's a little bit broad. We brought in a, a slightly more British perspective. We did the British background book and the Irish book, Tin and Och, which is a very magical book and tie in adventures, but then started doing novels for them. And the way Carl and I would work, Carl is a word, always was a word machine. He hasn't written in, in the game industry for, for a fair while. But his background in both science writing and, and working on Warhammer and before that TSR stuff was he would he'd do you 10,000 words across a couple of days. So we between us would plot it out. He'd go away and bat it out and I'd then rewrite it and edit it, which meant that for uh, Fazza, we were supplying them basically with camera ready copy. They'd give it a proofread and off it would go. And that's not always the case with freelance stuff often there are people who are enthusiastic game players but not necessarily perhaps uh, able to provide stuff to that high quality so we were being given a lot of things to do some of which we were out of their depth uh, me particularly since i've never played Shadowrun or earth it's a, i'm fascinated to learn that there is a little coterie who still revere earth dawn yes yeah it's, i think every game has its little champions and if it's ex i think exotic particularly because people rarely remember a, a game mechanic unless they're, they're in, into the design but a particular type of game world or even just an amazing approach to design and art will uh, layout will uh, will be remembered one of my favorites is also always a game called sky realms of jeroon Oh yes, which is yeah. in its feel actually is not dissimilar to Earth Dawn in that it's that slightly exotic hints of dinosaurs and lizards to it, um, but the artwork in that was so incredible for its time that I've never played the game, but I have every single one of the Jeroen books in my in my museum, because they're just an absolute acme of uh, of uh, beautiful product at that time. Just before we move on to what what you're doing nowadays, just talk about your museum. Do you still have all your uh, gaming stuff future? I have an awful lot of it. I think I've, I've, I've sold a few pieces from time to time, but mostly things like yeah, the very first editions of the, the 40k role-playing game and all the supplements, all the stuff I, I, I used to pick up as, as just office samples. But certainly the very earliest fanzines I bought, I've got all of those. That copy of Troll Crusher that inspired Dragon Lords and uh, the copy of Underworld Oracle 5 that I took to the printer and said I want something like this. And uh, where everybody gave me, I say, a box of unstable cheats bastard. Um, and uh, all those things. But my, my lad, uh, who's 11, uh, heading on 35, yeah. uh, came to me and said, oh, that game they play on Big Bang Theory, Dungeons and Dragons, that's not real, is it? Because he knows that some of them are made up. He knows Talisman that they play on. It's real because uh, dad, uh, in my last days at uh, workshop the second time, uh, worked on the new edition. Um, I said, no, D&D, &D, my son, come this way. And I opened up the cupboard in his sister's room here. And, and boxes and boxes of supplements and the soldiers and the floor plans and the uh, Judges Guild and uh, copies of Dragon Magazine and all these things. So... Uh, don't tell him, but he's getting a set for his birthday in January, and that's it. His gaming group will begin if he wants to keep it. 
uh, wants to play it and off we go oh that's that's great news but as you as you know yeah when you get into games uh, when you get into kids rather <laughs> and the fab life gaming groups become harder and harder to organize but actually what we've seen across the last 10 years of course is the ride of board game nights and with some of the workshop guys i've, I've been out playing uh, board games again but my big thing actually is card games those clever little games whether it's flux or love letter or whatever something you can do in 20 minutes because frankly you know that you've got one ear open for the noise that's going on up in someone's bedroom when they're meant to be asleep on a Friday night. And fitting those things in here and then and everywhere is, is really where it's at for the moment, at least till they they, uh, they grow up and leave, right. which uh, the way he's going is going to be very soon, bless him, <laughs> uh, or not. But well, yes, a lot of these things, I keep saying to myself, well, should I stick them on eBay for people who really enjoy them? But Actually, they all mean a lot to me because the things I've held on to have been the things that we played and died in or played and, and won or uh, had adventures or the bits where, frankly, I went through them all and took that fantasy idea and used it in a dread adventure or in a, to uh, inspire the seed of some Cthulhu game or whatever. It all feeds in and it's all part of that that background. It's what made me who I am, along with the Moorcock novels and the Hawkwind albums and years working on workshop fiction and comic books and all those things. And just tell us a little bit about Angry Robot and how that came about. And uh, yeah, well, I was, so we were running Black. Uh, I was running Black Library, and uh, that had been going eleven years. And I was getting bored, and uh, we'd had a separate unit within the bigger what they call used to call BL Publishing, Black Library Publishing, a workshop which is all the non-tabletop stuff. And we were doing role-playing games, and there was some licensed product, and we'd started an imprint, Solaris, which was original fiction, using some of the workshop money to get that going. And uh, they needed to save money, and they, they saw this bored, bolshy bloke, and uh, I moved on. But in my last days at workshop, I'd been talking to the people at HarperCollins who were looking at how well Black Library was selling bucket loads of fiction to teenage and adult males, which is traditionally the area who don't read SF. And the means we were doing it often by you know, using forums. Black Library was the only bit of workshop allowed to run a forum. Uh, it was seen as too dangerous uh, with it without moderation. But we trained civilian moderators who were all our champions and yeah, were very calm and logical about what we did. So we were making great guns with that. And Harper Collins said, well, come in and have a chat. And if we gave you a bit of money, what would you do? And I pitched something which was pretty much identical to what we've been doing with Solaris and Black Library. And they says, well, you go make a business plan. And that was it. We're off. And I'd been talking to them. I'd been talking to Osprey, who do the, the military nonfiction reference books. They were looking at a fiction line. And actually also talking to Blizzard, the, the Warcraft people, about uh, building up a bigger fiction line for them. But in the end, HarperCollins won, being based in the UK and having quite a bit of cash. And so Angry Robot was born. And the name came out of nowhere one night. We'd actually, we, was, we were going to be called Dark Star and uh, I pitched this whole thing very much in the, the Solaris's shadow in the first place. Uh, Solaris itself had gone off, had been bought from Workshop by Rebellion, uh, the 2000 AD guys. It all, it's all the same people, you know, it all joins up. <laughs> and uh, run by Jason Kingsley, who's uh, I used to know when he was a teenager doing his fanzine, Mystic Crystal, which uh, I still have copies of, and we should get scans up of those if you ever interview him, because some of those are hilarious, even worse than Dragonlords 1. Um, and uh, yeah, he did he did the review of the Dread Roleplay game in the pages of White Dwarf among his first ever paid work when he was still, I think, just a teenager or just, just heading into uni. Um, so we've known those guys for a long time. So they picked up Solaris and I was pitching this new thing that was going to become Angry Robot, just like it. And Solaris's thing back in the day was, yeah, we're getting kind of 
complicated in science fiction publishing. We see people like Orbit and Galantz trying to sell books to people who don't read science fiction. And so Solaris was set up as books with spaceships on the front or wizards on the front. Trad, SF and fantasy, but from a modern perspective. But Angry Robot went the other way. It was... Uh, it could just as easily have been you know, a webcomic or a heavy metal band or a brand of skateboard clothing or something. And I say we, we were going to be called Dark Star and the HarperCollins lawyer had uh, done some web searches and some legal trademark things and we were good to go on that. And he sent the note through tea time and I went to bed thinking, I'm not happy with this. This is, this is not right. And I sat up late into the night just looking for inspiration in their death metal T-shirt suppliers scribbling down adjectives when i woke up in the morning i had two columns and we had two columns because there's a character in warhammer fantasy called malice Darkblade, and his name grew out of doing two columns of first names and second names and i did the same thing with this and the first line said angry and robot the second line said ninja and monkey and we all said that ninja monkey would be another line at some point could just as easily be called have been called that but I said I, the next morning, I said to uh, my liaison at HarperCollins, uh, Chris, the, the strategy guy I was working with, uh, to, to, to liaise with, you know, setting up the business within their, their team. And uh, he said, that's brilliant. I'm going to go and tell everyone. And he came back an hour later and says, well, I've spoken to all the senior management and half of them went, bloody hell, that's amazing as a name. And the other half went, what the hell? That's the worst name I've ever heard. So we knew we were onto something. <laughs> and it became quickly a, a, almost a rallying call for trying to do things differently, using a lot of those ideas we'd pioneered at Black Library, um, talking to your customers as equals. We're all just part of a continuum of gamers and fans and writers who might dabble at NaNoWriMo or go to a writing group or to the BFS or the BSFA and, you know, discuss their short fiction or run a review blog or just hang out at conventions to up to this right up to the top to being a published successful best-selling author and then on sky's the limit and that credibility and that being part of the community is what's driven angry robot we've stayed up in nottingham even though harper collins were down in hammersmith um because they didn't have any room for us and they're, they're busy doing their own thing and it lasted for about a, a year and a half but the person who was championing us there uh, moved on uh, to to take over a, another uh, publisher and we were let go fairly soon afterwards but as I mentioned earlier I'd also been discussing potentially building a fiction line with Osprey so I was on the phone to them 10 minutes later and I caught them coming back from an award ceremony where they'd won best independent publisher of the year and uh, after 14 minutes after I'd been told by HarperCollins we were shutting we were back in business we bought all the contracts off HarperCollins for a pound and uh, basically HarperCollins paid for Angry Robot to set up. So we stayed up in Nottingham and uh, we are assisted greatly by having a sales team in the States who are Penguin Random Houses sales team. So we go out through the big boys, just like an indie record label, really. Uh, so we can be fast and nimble. We follow all our strategies of community building. We talk to our fans. We have a very big Twitter following, bigger than most comparable, even the major publishers uh, in the SF field and uh, strong at conventions, strong on access to being published. We're running an open door campaign at the moment for another month where unagented authors can send in their manuscripts in the hope of being reviewed. We publish worldwide on the same day. So if you're a fan and you've heard of our book, you can get it wherever you are. We do audiobook as standard, ebook as standard, all the things that have changed. We were right on the edge of, of doing it among the first people to do it. The danger is, of course, that entropy sets in and you have to keep reinventing yourself. And there's a whole bunch of uh, strategic things happening behind the scenes. But basically, my day job is I've got a lovely little office with a couple of staffers in the middle of town in Nottingham. 
and uh, we plot uh, the uh, the robot taker of the world from there. And on and on we go. Three books a month, 30 books a year, uh, approximately. And that's been happening for eight years now. And we've won the Alfred C. Clarke Award and the World Fantasy Award and the British Fantasy Award and the Philip K. Dick Award and the Prometheus Award and Nebulas and Hugos and blah, 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 blah. So something's going okay. And to think it started with that uh, little uh, A4 folded uh, stapled uh, fancy. I think it's the same thing, you know, it's it's seeing what other people can do and saying, oh, I could do that. But I think I've got some ideas to make that even better. And I've always been, I've realized, well, I've realized a bunch of things. I had a little chat with myself about five years ago where I found myself thinking for some unknown reason, perhaps I was had sobered up, uh, that uh, I must work out what I'm going to do with my life. And I realized I'd have been in publishing in one form or another for 30 years. Um, but one day I'll grow up and get a proper job. But it's that being a producer, being a publisher, being a behind the scenes film director type rather than the star talent, though I've written plenty of things, but I've been a much better editor and compiler and producer and director than I ever was as a, uh, as a, certainly as a novelist. Uh, there's a wonderful scene in the middle of the fighting fantasy novel I wrote, Demon Stealer, which uh, the heroes are chasing some bad guys through the desert and they're bemoaning their fate for page after page <laughs> will this never end they keep saying as they slog another word another word another foot in front of another and of course my editor made me take it all out because that, that's just you that is i don't think you'll be doing another <laughs> one of these and i realized that you know i am i am the producer string puller and in some cases you know putting people together to make great things happen in other cases getting an idea and giving it to other people to do a better job with it than I can ever do. Well, but it's where it's always been since, since those early. I think basic role play, basic D and D taught me that. Create the games for other people to enjoy, and sit back and and smile smugly when they all die horribly. <laughs> well, you've got an amazing track record of doing that, Mark. Oh. And thanks for sharing that with us. It's been fantastic speaking to you. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you, and thanks for listening. Just by the rules. Welcome to Derek Malcolm Block, wherein can be found the room of role-playing rambling, home of the Justice Department's favourite rules lawyer, old bony face himself, Judge Blythe. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. So, we're fresh, aren't we, from uh, playing this game? Yes, we are. In, uh, in Birmingham, mm. um, the UK's second city after Manchester. Mm. And we've, we, we always say, don't we? We always say that we play the game before we talk about it. Because yeah, it's useful, it's useful to do that, isn't it? Yeah. It gives the impression that we know what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah it helps well, us give that impression. So after 35 years, 35 what years. was it like playing Just Dread for the first time? Um, it was okay. It was okay. The games master was a bit rubbish. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, perhaps you asked for that. You walked into it, didn't you? <laughs> so you, always, you always do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It is a great setting for a role-playing game, Mega City One. Whether that's just nostalgia or not is possibly debatable. I don't know. Well, I think Mega City One is a great setting, mm. and I had tremendous fun. We played Better Living Through Chemistry, which yes. is the scenario which was written by yeah. uh, Daily Dwarf for the Zine. Yeah, and, and it's, a, it's a very good scenario because it. Uh, it pushes all the right buttons, doesn't it? Yeah. We won't talk too much about it in case people want to play it, but um, it, it, it does all the right things in all the right places, so to speak. And it's got layers and layers of um, 
jokes and yeah, popular yeah, culture yeah, yeah. references yeah, yeah. and it yeah. works it works really really just like well. the comics do just yeah. like the comics show did yeah, yeah. so yeah it's, it's very very good and it's set in that period just after the apocalypse war and block mania so it had a real sense of the 80s yes so I should perhaps explain that I uh, ran the game twice as a games master, um, first in the morning and in the afternoon session. Uh, it has to be said there was more mature players. Um, yes. <laughs> mature players who were aware of Juice Dread and uh, the setting a lot more than the, yeah. um, the early game. Because the morning game, I, that's when I realised that Mega City 1 is really about nostalgia for us in yes. a lot of ways. Because... Yeah. There's a couple of 14-year-olds on the table, and it has no currency. Judge Dredd, unfortunately, has no currency for 14-year-olds now, unlike us when we were 14. Yeah, and, that, and that's the thing that's a bit tricky when you're assessing the setting. Um, the degree to which my enjoyment and love of that setting, when we were playing, comes from nostalgia. Yeah, I mean it's not pure nostalgia because it is a good setting. I mean it's very, it is very clever, yeah, um, very evocative and very colourful. And you know the whole language of Mega City One, Stooky Glanders, stuff yeah. like that. Frank Cannonblock, you know the, the whole the, the language of it is entertaining just in itself, isn't it? The way that things are described. I was quite taken aback actually of the number of people who were playing the game, who were unaware of it. And I, I was a little bit, yeah. yeah. I, I was surprised. For some people, the only reference they have is either the Stallone movie yeah. or the Carl yeah, Urban yeah. movie. Yeah. And the thing with the Carl Urban movie is I, I, I quite like it. Oh, it's a good film, but it's not, it's not quite like... It's not really like the comics, is it? It's not quite Judge Dredd, in a way. No. no. Well, I, and I felt that in the morning when... Um, somebody tried to do an arrest and started effing and jeffing. Yeah, yeah. And he was yeah. hauled up by one of the more <laughs> mature players by yes. saying, No, we said rocking in yeah. uh, Mega City One. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. Well, I think the Carl Urban film, you, you, you enjoy it because you're glad you're not watching the Sylvester Stallone film. <laughs> you're, just, you're just glad you're not watching that. I think that's a debate for another day. I think it has its merits. It yeah, has its it merits. It does, but it's, I, I thought it's was probably a tough watch. <laughs> The art design's good in it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. it's everything else. The scenery's good. It's yeah. Just the moving, the moving actors that are no good. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's what uh, what struck me uh, about Mega City One as a, as a thing. It, it is tinged with nostalgia. Yes, absolutely. I think we'll come on to how the mechanics played into that um, when we talk a bit more about the rules. But yeah, it's great. There was a sharp intake of breath when um, the fat is rolled in, you know, because it, yes. it, it it was felt like it was some kind of offensive some somewhere. Well, yeah, but yeah, and that's the thing, isn't it? I I enjoyed it when the fatties rolled out because as a as a Judge Red fan and someone who read the comic when I was a kid, that that's part of it, isn't it? So you're yeah. not offended. You just see it as that's part of Mega City One. Well, that because that's the thing with Mega City One, isn't it? There is a grotesqueness to it. It's part of that British tradition of the grotesque, isn't it? That yeah. a lot of the characters in it, apart from the judges, and even some of the judges, are, are grotesque figures, aren't they? The fatties are a very good example of that. Yeah. I think uh, the good thing about Mega City 1 as well, it plays into um, the balance that I like, which is a level of grit 
but also yeah. a, a sense of yeah. humour about it. Yeah. Uh, and it works well at the table, I think. I think it translates well at the table. Yeah. But I think it's... Uh, uh, this isn't quite the setting, but it's part of the setting. I think the real strength, and it worked well as a convention game, the real strength of the game is the fact that you play judges mm. and you know you know what you're doing, you know what you're about. You know, so often in role-playing games, um, there is that problem of character motivation, isn't there? Mm. Why are we doing this? You know, one of, Eddie, one of Eddie's favourite lines in any game, why are we doing this? Why are we putting our lives at risk? And sometimes there is that, that question of, well, are we just going along with it? You know, why are we, we investigating the death of our friend by supernatural forces? Because well, because it's called a cathedral, that's what you do. That kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. But I think in Judge Dredd, it, it, it's really good that it's so well-defined, isn't it? It's absolutely well-defined. You're a judge, and what you've got to do is uphold the law, and there are villains and perps and what have you, and you go out and arrest them. Yeah. But from that point of view, it, it's fantastic because it just gives you a clear focus. It does give you a clear um, focus and the mechanics support you in making sure that you're applying the rule of law. So, you you know, the perps are allowed to wildfire so they get advantage on any initiative situation because they're more likely going to shoot first because... Uh, they they can uh, they can just shoot from the hip, whereas judges have to aim uh, and attempt to make an, adri- an make arrest. arrest. Yeah, yeah. So of course it puts people in a position where they're having to make a judgment of whether this is constitutes self defence or yes. yeah. So you put laws there, it gives people a, a moral conflict already, yeah. isn't it? So you put people in situations as a games master where they're having to make a decision whether they do the right thing or protect themselves yeah exactly and from a role playing perspective that's interesting both from a game master's end and a player's end in that you are constrained and have to act in a certain way or at least find your way through that and again with role playing games it's that thing of not just what motivates a character but what what makes them behave in a consistent way which can sometimes be a problem can't it so in Judge Dredd, you have got that pressure to behave in a consistent way. There are consequences if you don't, which again is, is a good thing. I think it's yeah. a good. It's a it's a neat a neat um, a as, neat setting from that perspective. As a player, is there enough though to differentiate the character? Judges like a certain personality, don't they? There are a yes. few exceptions yeah. in the comics, but on the whole, they like yeah. personality. So, how's that uh, to deal with as a player? Well, I mean, we'll we'll talk about the mechanics in a bit, but it's a relatively simple system. Um, but I suppose it begs the question, is it too simple? Yes. Is it too simple and a bit too... The characters are just... Oh, there are some special abilities you can have, but are the characters just numbers? Yeah. I, I have to say as well, whilst I've just said it, it's fantastic from the point of view that it gives you motivation and it gives you that moral compass, and it gives you a sense of how you should or shouldn't be acting. And all those things are really positive things in a role-playing game. So you can kind of hit the ground running, and it works well at a convention, and it would work well as a one-shot or over a couple of sessions. I think it would get a bit thin if you played it long-term. 
there I'm, not, are, I'm not sure how much mileage there is. There are, there are opportunities to develop as a judge. So you can develop your skills as a judge. Mm. You can um, have uh, specialism. So you can move into different branches. You can become a side judge or a tech yeah. judge yeah. and uh, choose your special and get uh, increased special abilities. So there is some sort of character development, but I do think what's lacking is any sense of uh, what's your... Yeah, um, you know what? What differentiates you as a, an individual? Well, it, there is, and it's not so much character development. I don't, I mean, I don't quite mean that. I think, yeah, could, could you play it every other week for a year without getting a bit bored or arresting perps? But is it is it a bit limiting in terms? Well, I think of some of the uh, I think some of the best products that were developed for Juice Dread, so um, the. Slaughter margin and judgment day are, long, are big campaigns, not they? Yeah, they're yeah. quite meaty campaigns, but they're very plot driven and yeah. very incident driven, yeah. and very a deep delve into the world of Mega City One. Yeah, not really about, um, not really about you as a character developing. It's you progressing and travelling through the story, and that's very much yeah. you know from that sample block of that time I had with you on um, Saturday with those players. Is I felt that part of this was taking people on a tour of Mega City. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and, and the adventure encourages that. Doesn't yeah, it? absolutely. Yeah, that's what's that's what's fun about it. Yeah. Right to help this discussion. Mm-hmm. Rather than asking you to choose some highlights, what I thought was that we'd have a look at a character sheet yeah, sure. and talk through that yeah. and some of the things on that. So what's the first thing that strikes you about that uh, character sheet? What's the first thing you want to look at? It's dominated a little bit by combat, isn't it? So you've got, you've got the... Um, there's more space on the character sheet given over to your gun and the cartridges and the, what have you, the ammunition and equipment than there is to the actual stats. Yes. You know, that's one... I mean, that's... that's Yeah. It's an interesting observation, that, because the way that the rules were originally presented were that the player's, player's book mm. uh, really just guided you through the resources that you had available yeah, to yeah, you yeah. and told you what kit you had, you know, yes. so your birdie lie detector... Yeah. Um, your lawgiver and what the different ammunition yeah. was capable of. And as you say, the couch sheet's taking over about half the space on there. Yeah. It's about managing it's resources. About, it's about equipment, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think when we played it, that came across, didn't it? Because I, I think afterwards, um, I think my character sort of fell off a, a moped, didn't he? And yeah. he, he won't give it, no, no spoilers, but he. Uh, you said afterwards, oh, you could have gotten your... Um, your lawmaster. Lawmaster to come remotely. And you think, oh, yeah, of course I could, yeah. So it's, it's based around equipment, isn't it? You know, they're not magic items and not abilities, but you've got stuff. Yeah. You've got stuff that does stuff. Uh, and part of the game, really, is irrespective of abilities and stats, it's about using the stuff you've got. In effective ways. Effective ways. And that was really interesting because... Um, it was Gaz, Gaz from the Smart Party, wasn't it? Who yeah. played the tech yeah. character, and like in a lot of science fiction games, you realise the tech guy, in a way, is, is the most interesting character. Or, not the most interesting, but can do the most yes. because they can hack things and look at, you know, do the break the locks and do this and do that and circumvent the uh, 
CCTV cameras. They do all sorts of things, tech guys, can't they? Yeah. And that's a very modern thing as well, because I don't, I probably when the game was, when the game was invented, things like hacking wouldn't have been no. particularly, it wouldn't have been common currency, would they? But nowadays, there's a kind of disproportionate amount of power given to the tech guy, because people say, well, I'm the tech guy, can I just hack into the system, make all the doors open? Yeah. And the games master, you go, oh, hey, oh, I suppose you can, really. It's quite, it's quite interesting, because the uh, Mega City One, of course, has the, the Mac computer yeah, that controls yeah, everything, yeah. so it is possible just to... Think, and the investigation, you know, you can circumvent a lot of investigation yeah, by just patching exactly. it through to control. Patching it through, yeah, and that's what the tech guy does, so yeah. that's kind of interesting. But I suppose that, again, connects to, it's not quite the same, but it connects to that idea of having equipment and resources yeah. and stuff that you can use, which quite a big part of the game, really. And... What it encourages you to do is to choose your ammo before each mission, so yeah, what yeah. kits you're going to have available to you, and mark it off. So as a 14-year-old boy, that's a, that's a, a good thing to do, isn't it? Crossing <laughs> off every bullet. That's a lot of fun, isn't it? Picking all your bullets and your stuff, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was a highlight of uh, Saturday when uh, <laughs> I saw a group of uh, 40-something uh, gentlemen all holding their fingers in the air as though they're holding guns, pointing them at me. <laughs> people were miming holding a, a lawgiver. Yeah, yeah, that's what people do with role-playing games, isn't it? <laughs> the point when people were pointing guns at me, I thought, they're immersed in this, they're in the scene. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a good sign. But you're right, it is very combat-oriented, so they... they we should say that the way that hit locations work. Now, the combat sequence is quite long, isn't it? Mm. So, um, you roll to hit. Yeah. If, it, if you hit, then you roll on location, which is a percentile dice. Mm. Um, then your armour is expressed as a percentage. Yeah. And so you roll under your armour, and that depletes... Uh, if it gets uh, hit, if that absorbs it. If um, it gets through, you then roll on a damage table. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, so uh, your gun will do a damage like D6. You look at the result. You look along, it could be a stun or a wound. If it's yeah. a stun, it puts you out of action uh, uh, for the next action. If it's a, if it's a wound, it knocks um, amount off your strength um, but you also have to roll for a dice to see what goes off your initiative. Yeah. So there's a lot of steps. You sold it to us there, yeah, haven't you? Pre precisely. It's, it's very action packed. Action packed. <laughs> but it does, it does feel if if you if in the eighties this was a tabletop game with miniatures, yeah. you can see how that because that's how I see it. I saw this demonstrated at a convention with uh, polystyrene blocks. And uh, you know, back, back in back in yeah, the eighties, yeah. and uh, loads of little miniature figures in a perp shootout. Yeah. And but that's not a role playing game, is it? No, no. And it, I suppose it. That's what I mean about it. It could get a little bit thin. It gives you all those kind of safety nets and rolls to make before you hit. Yeah. And even when you hit, there's still a chance that it's not all that bad. Yeah, and it's getting around that problem, isn't it? But it can be, it can be fairly devastating, though. Because, it can be, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. yeah. unlike the rest of your attributes, your strength is expressed between uh, one and four. Yeah. So um, 
So when this character's got two strength, it's entirely possible with a single blow oh, to, yeah, be, to yeah. be down to zero, yeah. unconscious or dead. Yeah. The other thing that depletes is your initiative, and your initiative is a, a, a key stat because it'll determine how many actions you have in a round, so that's expressed as a percentage. Mm. So every 10 and you round up, that's how many actions you have in a yeah. round. And as you... Uh, as you as that gets reduced, so does the number of actions you can take in the round. Which, in theory, when I read that, I thought, well, that makes sense. That that that's good. But in play, it's hard to yeah. uh, administer that, isn't it? Yeah. You're also not that great at things. Yeah. Well, we'll come on to that. But, Hold that thought. And, and but that's part of it as well. So it's not that easy to hit. When you do hit, you get armour rolls, you yeah. get all these kind of rolls. See, part of the thing I did on Saturday uh, in play was to adjust things to keep things moving along. It's actually hard to uh, get rid of perps, because perps deplete at a similar rate, yeah. but they don't have necessarily armour. But I had a rule that um, if you rolled a stun, then they were knocked out completely. And um, Yeah. If you roll the wound, that way, that, so like mook rules, just to get them out of the way. I know that um, Daily Dwarf, when he ran it, he had a, an escalation die, so your actual chance to hit improved as the combat progressed. Yeah. Because you're right, it, it is hard to do things, and I think we need to say that, don't we? Because I could yeah. see you looking forlorn by the. Uh, I, well, I, I have to say, I put it on the record, I had some terrible rolls. I mean, yeah. I, I think I just had to absolutely. God, I Bum rolls. I think I changed my dice at one point. That you did, yeah. Really superstitious way. I'm a rational human being, but I changed my dice because I still rolled terribly. So that, there was that to it. I just had dreadful rolls. But that said, um, you, you, it's a percentile system. And, for example, this, this character's got driving skill 28, um, 28%. Now, we know that that doesn't mean... You have to roll that when you get on on something and try and drive that. We know that. But in a chase, you'd like to think a judge might be a bit better than that. Yeah. That's that's one of the yeah. slight glitches in it, you think? Oh, well, I, I don't think it's more than it. I think it's more than a slight glitch, because I, I find as a games master, um, by the end of the day, when the nostalgia was wearing off a bit, mm. and I was trying to do things... Um, we were incapable of doing it. You were incapable of doing it. Because missing the role, yeah. Because you reach that point, don't you, where you want to replicate the action of uh, the comic. Yes. And I think at times, at times I was encouraging people, even though there was counters on the table and floor plans, I was saying, ignore physics, this is a yeah. comic strip. Yeah. Um, people were doing that, but still failing. And I think, yeah, uh, that, that's one of the problems is... I mean, we can talk about the stats in a minute, but it's kind of it's stat based. There are special abilities, but all, a lot of those special abilities just add to your percentage chances. It might give ten percent chances or yeah, well, so the ability you, to you, do something. But your attributes are expressed as a percentage, aren't they? So yeah. most things are resolved by rolling over the relative but attribute. Odd. I mean, the, the stats are a bit odd as well, and they do. It's interesting, isn't it? They do echo a tabletop battle game rather than a role playing game I think when yeah. you look when you look at them let's look at some so strength right strength 2 
All that seems to mean to me is that you can take two wounds. It doesn't yeah. seem to mean anything more than that. You can test strength, but you do it on a D4. Yeah. Whereas everything else is on a. Yeah. On a... Then you've got you've got initiative, which is a is a sort of indicator of. Did, did, you, did you use it as agility? As yeah, well? it's agility. So it's your. So again, it's a sort. Of, but it, the way they describe it is initiative rather than agility or dexterity. It's very very. So more, I, I thought that more was a game. I thought that was I, I thought that was all right. But but then you've got what, what I mean is though you've got combat skill, and then you've got uh, street skills, tech skills, drive skills, medical skills, um, and if you if you've got them, psi skills. The the language the language of those stats. Yeah. It feels like it's a tabletop war game rather than a role playing game. It is a role playing game, and yeah. and these the stats work. You can you can do stuff with them. It's not a massive problem. Part of the difficulty is is oversimplification yeah. so things expressed as an exp- as a percentage on the attributes is one thing you also have special abilities which will give your uh, character an edge in some certain situations yeah. such as being agile or dodging a shot yeah but really i felt like all judges should have those special abilities yeah the, or those aspects to the character because you're a judge you're not doing a law master kick Every judge should have the opportunity. Yes, no, to... I, I agree, and that—that's kind of what I meant about the drive skill being so low. They—they they would be good at it. They yeah. just would be, you, you wouldn't take this the game mechanics and say, "Oh, well, I'll tell you what, let's make all the judges eighty percent in everything." It just begs the question as whether there's a better mechanic. Yes, to a better mechanic Absolutely. to deal with those kind of things. Because not only does it uh, mean that you're failing often using the percentage system in this way, it doesn't give you any facility to do really, really well as well. So there's yeah. no critical within it. So you don't. Yeah. You, players can't get that pleasure of rolling. Yeah. A, a, a good really roll. Good. Yeah. I think. certainly didn't when we played. <laughs> with this pleasure of rolling bad one. And, and, and it feels in that comic book environment that yes. you need to be yes. able to... Yeah. Um, you know, I let people shoot through walls and yeah. that kind of thing, but... Comic, I mean, you're right, it's comic, they don't have yeah. superpowers, but they have super equipment and they're super trained, aren't they? Like, a bit like Batman. Yeah. Uh, so on that basis, it, it, is, it is in that ballpark of a superhero game, isn't it? You're a yeah. judge, you Mega City One, you're a tough guy. You're not... It doesn't work like say a fantasy game might work where you start off as a farm boy with a rusty sword and build your way up it's you're a judge you know yeah. so unless you're all rookies which i suppose you can be and that might be a bit plausible but you know you're playing in the game we played there was a rookie but the rest some of us were grizzled old judges weren't we and you'd think these guys have been around the block yeah literally a few times they'd, they'd be good at stuff yeah but the, but you're right the mechanics the, the system doesn't lend it, it doesn't, it couldn't allow you to be, no. have brilliant percentages and everything, because then it would be boring, because you would achieve everything. Yeah. The mechanics don't quite, that, so I mean, it feels, it does feel like a skirmish game. So it's ripe, I think, this. So if you took the Games Masters book that came with this book, mm. which is great because it yeah. tells... I, yeah. I know that Daily Dwarf last time said that uh, he struggled with it because it doesn't tell you how to write adventures, but I think even back in the day when I read it, adventures sprung off the page because yeah. there were just so many great yeah, yeah. things, great yeah, crimes. There's a lot of material there. Uh, yeah. Great characters, great perps, great citizens, yes. great situations, yeah, yeah. great design. Yeah. Um, 
I like the way that um, scenarios start with a patrol sheet. You know, what, what's out there? Be careful out there. The Hill Street Blues type thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that. Very kind of structured, isn't it? Which is quite good. Yeah. And you can give hints and tips and yeah. you can, uh, you know, you can prepare... You can prepare a scenario that has uh, little in jokes and uh, yeah. lots of lots of lots of good stuff. So if you're gonna if you're gonna do it, how would you do it? Putting the mechanics aside. I mean, what system you would pick to run it? Or yeah, or how would you approach it? Something like fate would lend itself to it, where yeah. you've got you've got sort of traits and feats and things that you can bring, and also you've got that flexibility to suggest things in a comic book kind of way but Feng Shui does that doesn't it yeah. you know it's comic I see I think I think Feng Shui would be yeah. be good because that's action orientated isn't yeah. it yeah. Yeah. well I think I think what was interesting when we played it was it, it has this feel of being tabletop skirmish game and you had all the counters and everything which added a lot I think that added a lot because it gave it kind of real visual thing particularly for people who are not familiar with 2018 that was all good but there was a point and there's a couple of points where you said at the end, you said, it's a comic book. It's a comic, it's a comic book. book. Forget where you're talking. It's, it's a comic book. Like you say, people shooting around corners. People said, well, hang on a minute, I'm positioned here. You went, it's a comic book. Forget all that. Ignore that. <laughs> you were ignoring all those things. So the IP, now, the uh, intellectual property, is now owned by uh, Wine. I pronounced it wrongly last time. What, what's old is new. So if we were going to give them some advice in uh, going forward and doing doing this, that's what we want to see, isn't it? Some more fluidity. Yeah. Fluidity, yeah. Fluidity, something where you can players can negotiate action. Yeah, so, you know, something like um, Knights Black Agents, where you've got that ability to, every every game, there's one thing you can definitely do, and you decide when that moment is. Yeah, but that that sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah, doesn't okay. make you too doesn't make you too powerful, but it gives you that ability to influence the narrative a bit, you know, and say, "My judge is going to do this. This is his moment in the spotlight. This is the moment where he's going to get on his uh, lawmaster and give chase, you know, and keep up with this guy." That kind of thing. Yeah, you know, it doesn't allow you to do it all the time, but it does allow you to do that rather than like my character, <laughs> rolling to do things and just failing every time. Yeah. Oh, I can't do anything. <laughs> oh, crap, I must survive so long as a judge. <laughs> I, either, I think it would benefit for either the fluidity of something like Feng Shui and Fate, mm. and I think Gaz was saying something like Savage Worlds might work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So on the one hand, you could say that, but I always also think, you know, uh, a few episodes ago, we looked at um, James Bond, RPG. Yeah. And if you wanted to go yeah. down the route of yeah. uh, old school building up a character with skills and different abilities, but also having the ability to be really good at yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. James Bond could be a route, couldn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah, and, and in its defence, it's a it's a game from the 80s, and I suppose some of those... All the games that we talk well, about. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we always do this, and, and in its in its defence, uh, before it's sent to an ISO cube, uh, before <laughs> in its defence and I think this is the first game of the series of podcasts that I've gone back that I have it, it, on Saturday when we went back to uh, Mega City 1 <laughs> when we were playing in Mega City 1 yeah. it was like recapturing that moment in 2010 when we first stepped back into Glorantha it yeah. was like coming home yes. and yeah. there was something great about that moment of being in yeah. Mega City 1. Yeah. 
However, this is the first game of the series where I feel like the mechanics uh, belong back in the 80s. Yes, yeah. I want to play Juice Dread with this box set, with some of the supplements that were produced in the 80s, but I wouldn't want to run it with these mechanics. I'd recommend you read Better Living Through Chemistry. Oh, yeah, a fantastic scenario. Good scenario, and it was written to be read as well as played, and there's so many great (laughs) moments in it, so I tell people to go back. Now, last time we did this, uh, blightly, we were rubbish at it. So I'm going to have another go before we finish at seeing if you can, off the top of your head, riff a story based on two elements. So it, when, we, when we were playing, one of the players actually said, you know, the thing, the thing that differentiated uh, 2018 in the 80s is that it would take something from popular culture, so yeah, a, would, yeah, a popular yeah. format and something that was in the news and bring them together, mm, right? Yeah. Now, we tried it last time. You came up with a rubbish one. I, came, <laughs> I, think, I think you might find that true this time as well. But, uh, I came up with a really good one. Let's see. Well, okay. Yeah, I see. Okay. That's how this is going. I'm going to pull out of the uh, <laughs> helmet, the judge's helmet. Yeah. Uh, two things. Now, these yeah, are genuinely random. Genuinely random. Okay, go on. And it's Brexit. Oh, my God. So that's the UK oh. leaving the and European Union. think of that? Has that been in the news recently? <laughs> And the other thing is the Game of Thrones. Create... Jacob Reese Lannister. I don't... <laughs> Game of Thrones and Brexit. They're the same thing, aren't they? No, they're not different. You've, you've, picked, you've picked the same things out of the helmet. You've picked the same things, just different names. I bet Ken and Robin are bricking it. <laughs> there isn't another bit. Thank you very much to Mark for giving such a fantastic interview in this episode. The memories of his time at Gaines Workshop are fresh in his mind as he's been discussing the old days with his former boss, Jamie Thompson, who's working on a definitive history of Gaines Workshop between 1975 and 1985. The plans are for a full-colour illustrated hardback. It's on the crowdfunding platform Unbound with very attractive pledge awards, including a facsimile copies of The Owl and Weasel, the newsletter which was the precursor to White Dwarf, produced by Ian Livingstone and Steve Jackson when they started their company. I'll uh, put a link in the show notes. I'll be running Judge Dread at UK Games Expo in the summer. It's booked up, but if you'd like to read the adventure, then the PDF of the Grognard Files fanzine is now available for patrons. If you enjoy Daily Dwarfs writing for the podcast, and who wouldn't, then you'll love Better Living Through Chemistry, the scenario he wrote for the zine. It's funny and inventive. Patreon is the way that we fund the podcast and supporting projects. The podcast will always be free, but the generous support of the Grog Squad keep us going and encourage us to do more activities. We've reached the goal of virtual grog meet, so on the 13th and 14th of April 2018 we'll be running online games. 
information will be sent out in March to patrons. Thanks to all of the Grog Squad for their continued support and thank you and welcome to new patrons. At the $1 level, there's Lee Williams and Soin Pritchard. Thank you. For those who support us at $5 or more a month, we like to award them with a virtual gift from the game under discussion. This time, they're going to receive a special mutation. They'll become a mutie and be cast out to the other side of the huge plastine wall. It's a beautiful wall. The biggest and bestest wall. So, first up, it's Greg Fetzer. And he's got a shrunken knee. Uh, thank you, Greg. Okay, next, Simon Hatch. And Simon's got hands with an unusual skin texture. Thanks, Simon. And uh, David Black. He's got he's got legs uh, where his arms should be, so you can pretend that you're the Isle of Man. So thanks, David. Okay, uh, Ben Galvin. Uh, here you go, Ben. Especially for you. You've got an elbow fixed at 180 degrees. It's helpful for scratching your backside. Thanks, Ben. And next up is Matt Worrylove. And Matt, Matt gets shrunken teeth. Thanks, Matt. And finally, Good Mania. Good Mania has got a chest of an antelope. Thank you very much. Thank you all, muties. Now, get back to Cursed Earth. Next time... We'll get fitter, happier, more productive, comfortable. The computer is our friend. The alpha complex awaits our paranoia. I don't know about you, but since the last podcast, the universe seems a bit emptier. Adios, amigos. Ah. <laughs>